So, uh, how many of you have heard of Deacon Stephen Muse? Okay, some of you. Uh, yeah, half an hour ago. There we go. Everyone needs to raise their hand. <laughs> um, I highly encourage you to look at what he has out there. Um, he has a, a podcast or a blog on Ancient Faith Radio, um, some books, and um, um, he, uh, well, I'll read his bio. This was from the retreat, so you can get a, a much clearer idea of what uh, Deacon Muse is all about. Reverend Deacon Stephen Muse is Senior Pastoral Psychotherapist and Director of Clergy in Queros, a nationally recognized week-long intensive stress and wellness program for clergy and their spouses at the Pastoral Institute in Columbus, Georgia. And this is something that he started, actually. Um, and uh, these, these week-long intensive sessions that he does uh, with clergy and clergy families, Orthodox and not, he also does it just with regular old couples as well. So if you have the means and ability to go and schedule this time with him, if your marriage has some struggles, I highly, highly, highly recommend this. It can have a profound impact upon a marriage. Father Stephen trained and supervised U.S. Army and Air Force chaplains in pastoral psychological integration for 21 years. He has worked extensively with combat veterans, people experiencing spiritual training and trauma, and with clergy, physicians, and therapists suffering professional stress and burnout. He has an active practice in pastoral psychotherapy and teaches and leads workshops and retreats throughout the U.S. Before entering the Orthodox Church in 1993, he pastored a Presbyterian congregation for 11 years and helped at an outpatient clinic in Delta, Pennsylvania. Uh, he is on the Assembly of Canonical Bishops Pastoral Praxis Committee and uh, works is, was a, one of the was the founding uh, member of the Orthodox Christian Association for Medicine, Psychology, and Religion, OCamper, if you've heard of that. Um, and he's active at Holy Transfiguration Greek Orthodox Church in Columbus, Georgia. So uh, he has four children, a granddaughter, and three grandsons. So that's Deacon Stephen Muse. And um, he spoke about, the name of his talk was Growing Married in the Face of Adversity Toward a Faith Unashamed and a Love Unfeigned. So you get it right off the bat. This is a talk about adversity within marriage and also how adversity can be salvific, can be beneficial within marriage. Uh, early in his talk, he had a quote from Elder Emilia Nos. And what I'd like to do as I go along with this is I'll read a quote and then I'd like to get some thoughts or input on it or questions or anything along the way. I'd like to make this a little bit more than me just lecturing to you about what happened. So this is Elder Emilia Nos, who was the... Um, the uh, longtime abbot of Simono Petra on Mount Athos, a very charismatic and well-respected uh, Orthodox theologian. He says, My need for love and companionship is essentially a longing for God. And not even my marriage, he's not married, by the way, not even my marriage will be of any help to me if I do not have the church for my spouse. Marriage, like monasticism, is a longing for the infinite. It is not the satisfaction of a biological drive, but an orientation of the self 
toward the eschaton, toward the end. <coughs> marriage is a journey, an ascent toward the perfection of paradise. And he uh, gave some wonderful, uh, Elder Emilianos gave some wonderful homilies about marriage, which you can find online as well. Any thoughts on that? On the idea that my need for love and companionship is essentially a longing for God. Anything? I'll let you percolate on these a little more, but I'm going to keep prodding you, so hopefully I won't be the only one talking. Um, he, Deacon Stevens' thesis was that when the bonds of attraction begin and deepen in a marriage, the struggles and traumas of the past of childhood arise and the coping passions reveal themselves. So in a marriage, <coughs> what happens is two people form a bond of attraction. And that bond of attraction gets stronger. But when that bond of attraction gets stronger, what automatically comes out in a subconscious way, and sometimes in a conscious way, are the struggles and traumas of the past. And so then what happens is, we have this stuff bubbling up inside of us, and we don't like it. And we see upon our spouse, or project upon our spouse, they're the problem. Here are their problems. And of course, in marriage, we can find lots of problems with our spouses, right? This is what, one of the things that we do in our worst days in marriage. But his point in that is that the fact of the attraction, the fact of the bond between two people within marriage, that will bring out things from within us. And those things from within us will invariably <coughs> bring out passions. And so those passions become manifest in our marriage, but in our marriage, a lot of times we only see it as between the two of us, and so we think, well, if there's something changing or something new going on, it must be because of that other person. When in fact, so much of it is inside of us. So much of it is what is what has already existed inside of us. But when we make that bond of closeness, yeah. Oh yeah, thank you. Actually, I have cough drops in my pocket. <laughs> thank you. Uh, when we have that bond of closeness, then these things from who we are that we didn't realize begin to come up. Any thoughts? Any questions on that? Yes, that's true. <laughs> yeah, yes, there we go. Speaking the truth, there we go. Yeah. Would he go so far as to say that's a good sign? Yes. In, in fact, what he would say, what he would say is it is an inevitability. If a marriage is a marriage, these things will come up. If it's not a marriage, if it appears as a marriage and stays superficial, then these things may not come up. Yeah, which is not a good thing. That's not a marriage. But if it, is, if it is truly a marriage, exactly. If it's truly a marriage, these things will come up. And what we're challenged to is to look at ourselves and not look outward at the spouse. That is our great challenge. And of course, this is our challenge in all of life, but yeah.
Uh huh. Yeah. And he's like, well, thank God for them because it was always in you. Yeah. They're helping expose that. Yeah. Yeah, so what Lisa was saying is mirroring this with children, and it's very true, that we have things revealed to us about ourselves, that's the right way to understand it, when we have children. Most obviously, when the very first child is born, and the sleepless nights, and all of the irritation that comes, and frustration, you go, this is a beautiful little child, and I'm angry at it, I'm frustrated at it. And if we have the eyes to see or if we have the right perception to understand, it's actually just revealing what's already inside of us. So exactly the same as that with children, likewise with our spouses. But with our spouses, it's kind of, it's easier to put it on them because they're imperfect. Whereas a baby, you know, how can you fault a baby? In our, our worst times, we want to fault the baby, but we really, we feel guilty about that. So with an infant, it's a little harder to try and pin it on them. We have to actually, we're forced to see, well, it is me. But with our spouses, that's not always the case. It's not always the case. You, someone had a hand well, up? Well, kind of tidy all that is. The thing that's most frustrating dealing with my kids' passions is I, I know they're mine. Uh, that I know exactly where it's from. Yeah. Yep. That's hard. That's hard. Yeah. <clears throat> to see that our kids' passions come from us. Yeah. And then, yeah. like you said, it is, I guess that's why it is easier to look at your spouse and kind of, because your spouse is not you. Yeah. And you, there's still your passions that end up coming out in a way, but it's, yeah. it's, it's easier to. Well, and because, because we're all broken and fallen, we then, if someone's passions are coming out at us, what do we do? We respond with our passions. And so it's a big mess there that's going on. Yeah, he, uh, so further on in his talk, he said, we can become our spouse's judge and debt collector. My spouse becomes the scapegoat for all of my issues. <laughs> Excuse me. He says, this is the stance of a victim. Anyone who is trying to change the whole world or another person before themselves is a victim. It's a victim posture. Ponder that for a little bit. When we are putting the other as the source of the problem, it's the stance of a victim. And we can't have any healing then. Victims cannot be healed. Okay? We are looking outward at other people rather than looking inward at what is from us, what is within us. And there's no healing in that stance. He says repentance must be the starting point. Repentance must be the starting point. Well, what does this mean? We see our spouse's glaring shortcomings. How do we repent? We find ourselves. We look for ourselves. We see ourselves in it. And we repent of our part. We can't repent for other people's things as much as we might like to. We can't go to confession for other people's problems. We can go to confession only for our part. And I've talked about this before where... Um, you know, if someone comes up and punches me, whose fault is it? 
It's their fault, right? And we oftentimes put repentance in the category of fault. So we want to find the things where it's my fault, and that's what I'm going to confess. That's a small portion. Furthermore, it's very questionable. Rather, in that situation of a person coming up and punching me, did I get angry? Did I get incited? That's my repentance right there. I can't repent for their punching me, but I can repent for how I received it and responded. Now if you put that into our marriages, because we can spend all day long talking about how the other person's yelling at me, or the other person doesn't understand me, or the other person is being selfish, or whatever it may be. What do we have in that? Because I could, I could be very um, extreme and say, so the other person is selfish. So what? So the other person is rude and hurtful and mean to you. So what? I don't mean that in a heartless way. What does that mean? How are you responding to that? How are you responding to that? Because if our response is, that's okay. And not that the thing itself is okay, but I am not affected by that. That's one thing. But in fact, we are deeply affected by all of these things. We're deeply affected by other people's sins. And that's what we repent of. And if we put it in the category of what's my fault, we will not be able to get the surgery we need. We will not. We have to get away from fault and just say, what is a wound upon my soul? What alienates me from God? If a person punches me and I get angry, I have alienated myself from God. That person didn't alienate me from God. They can't do anything. Right? This is the witness of our saints. They can be slaughtered and killed and they cannot be separated from God. I separated myself from God. Any thoughts? Yeah. Can we then go one step further and kind of assign blame for our spouse's troubles? on our own self to take in a, in a healthy way and yeah. it's part of our repentance mm-hmm. yeah so the question is can we go a step further and assign our spouse's blame or our spouse's issues upon us we can it's not an easy path but I mean the, the relationships like this right interwoven And so, yeah, if my spouse has a tendency towards whatever, what's my part in causing that? What's my part in causing that? Or do I want to just stand back and say, that's their business, that's their problem? What are you going to say? So I'll paraphrase what you're saying as suppressing and repenting are two very different things. They're two very different things. So we're not talking about what I can convince myself I don't really have a problem with. Oh, that Again, the analogy. Oh, that guy punched me. I'm not angry. I'm not angry. No, I'm not angry. Right? 
We can do that in our marriages. We can say, oh no, I'm not. No, I'm, no, that doesn't upset me. No, we can do all of that, right? And what are we doing then? We're covering up the festering wound and saying it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. I don't need healing for this. If we bring it to God instead in repentance, say no, I am hurt by this. I am angered by this. I am frustrated by this. Then we're inviting God to heal. Then there is healing. Other thoughts? Let me move forward. Well, yeah. I don't want to spend too much time on it, but I think it is important at least to mention that if, with abusive relationships, mm-hmm. there's, I mean, this, this, this kind of talk is healthy for, for all of us, but, but it can get twisted. People are abusive mm-hmm. relationships, and yeah. they can get themselves into yeah. they're, they're actually a fault for the abuse. That's a very good point. So the, the, the point is about abusive relationships. So how do we understand this within an abusive relationship? So if we talk about, let's take the most extreme example, that a child is molested. Okay. What is their healing? What is their healing? Their healing isn't by pointing the finger at who did it. Now, I'm I'm talking in a purely pastoral way here only. I'm not inviting you to have these conversations at all. But if I want to look at a person's soul and say, how can I heal that soul? There's something of repentance in there. And it doesn't mean fault. And that's where we have to really get away from this concept of fault. Because you're right, if we talk about, well, then you're saying it's the child's fault that they're molested? Of course not. Of course not. Not in any way, shape, or form. But what happens in that situation is that the, the opportunity for true healing sometimes can't occur when there's someone who's so clearly at fault. And so how we draw a person to that point becomes more difficult. And that, that's a, a process of years, especially when it's something that's that traumatic. So when we talk about in re- abusive relationships, we have to, there ha- there's a way to gently walk along with them to be able to understand what is repentance. Because, again, if we think of repentance in terms of legal right and wrong and who's at fault, we can't, we can't touch this situation with a 10-foot pole. Because there's a clear person who is at fault and a person who is not at fault. And so, what do we do with that? Well, the person who's not at fault, do they have a spiritual wound? They do. Very deep. And how do we approach that? So this is where we have to, we have to look at this just in terms of the wound upon my soul. The wound upon my soul. This is what I offer to God. Sometimes the wound upon my soul has a whole lot of my faults involved in it. Right? Because if I go and yell at someone, that's my fault too. And I also cause self-inflicted damage upon myself. But fault is just like one small portion of it. One small portion of it. We have to get away from that because especially when we're actually talking about human relationships, it's much more uh, messy than that, than assigning fault. 
Okay. Vault is for courtrooms, not for our salvation. I don't know if I, I don't think I fully got to it because. I mean, I, I just, it's, it's yeah. important at least to talk about, to mention that. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So if you're using as a, I mean, just yeah. in case anyone who's listening is in a yeah. relationship, if your example is someone punched me. Okay, yeah, yeah. So, no, that was my example of like random Joe on the street. Yeah. So, that, okay, so that's a good question. More specifically, is about a person who's in an abusive relationship. So, there's another aspect here, which is so I'm speaking not what Deacon Stephen is saying. He didn't really talk about this per se. Um, there is within our faith a, um, a desire to be saint like when we're not saints. What I mean by that is we could look at a saint's life and we could find saints who were abused in whatever way it may be. But we could say, that's what I need to do. I need to be that, like that saint and I need to soldier on. And the correct answer is maybe yes, maybe no. Because we can delude ourselves into thinking, I, am, I need to be a saint, so I just need to suck up and do it. And in our, our Orthodox faith, there is that temptation in there, right? We see all these examples of the things that saints do. Whether it's in a work setting, we're supposed to just like <coughs> long-sufferingly endure, maybe yes, maybe no. Whether it's in a relationship, maybe yes, maybe no. Because what we have to look at in that, and sort of the, the other part that I didn't really mention before, is that can we bear this? Can we bear this? And when we throw out a word like abuse, that puts it in the category of like, okay, a lot of people can't bear this, and so therefore shouldn't. So in terms of then walking away from the relationship. But that's something that those kind of situations, they, not, they need pastoral guidance. They need counseling. They need professionals. So, um, but those are the, the two aspects to it. On the one hand is that, yes, our Christian calling is to repent of our part and to endure. But no, we're not saints. And we can't just put on a coat, now I'm going to be a saint, and just keep on enduring. So it depends on the situation. It really does. Very much. Because, in fact, it could even be the difference between the prayer life of those two people. I don't know. So, yeah. What were you going to say? I remember one time Dr. office said, or I read something how sometimes, I don't know if you say the holiest thing or the most... Um, to say to the person, you're really hurting me, like in, in humility and in like like in a relationship, to say like, I'm really upset that you did that. That that is sometimes the best path because if you're going to be harboring resentment, like we're talking about pretending I can bear it, but I'm not bearing mm-hmm. So I don't know if you could speak to that, but it just requires a lot of discernment about yourself. Yeah, so, so we're moving... You know, we're moving away from the, the category of the abusive relationships and now we're talking more about just sort of general relationships that we have within marriage. And the, the point that uh, Presbyterio was making, Dr. Philip Mamalakis, who's a uh, pastoral theology professor at the seminary, he was saying <coughs> sometimes <coughs> what needs to be said is, I'm really hurt by this. This is, this is too much for me. So, because it is, it, it does, it's very delicate. It's very delicate because some situations are situations where we do need to just sort of suck it up 
you know, like uh, let's say a spouse is chronically late. Maybe that's a situation that we need to suck it up. Maybe there's a situation along the day where it was too much and I have to say something. So there's no easy formula as far as how we face this. But what we can always look at, we can always look at is what is stirring inside of me? Because sometimes that stirring inside of me is just a matter of repentance and I go repent, I go to confession. Sometimes that stirring up inside of me is something that yes, I go to confession and I also talk to my spouse and say, you know what, this thing really hurt, this really hurt. So it, that, that depends on what kind of situation, yeah. There is a place in where Christ says, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. Mm-hmm. Where, there, you don't, where even forgiveness and even this saintly behavior doesn't necessarily have to mean you never say that they did something wrong. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and again, there's a humble recognition, I'm not a saint. I can't bear this. Maybe if I were a saint, I, I could. Excuse me. Well, let me um, move to some more of these. Uh, This was off of that whole point about um, the stance of a victim. In our marriage, our spouse appears as our enemy because he or she has the key to the room where our shame and trauma reside. I'll say that again. In marriage, our spouse appears as our enemy because he or she... has the key to the room where our shame and trauma reside. Our spouse is the one that can unlock that stuff. And all we get is, like I'm angry, I'm upset, I'm whatever it is. And my spouse is the problem because all this stuff came out. So our spouse becomes our enemy. Why? Precisely because the spouse is the one who's the most intimate, who's closest. This is why marriage is such a beautiful, God-given thing. Because how else are we going to clean that junk out? How else? Except that we have someone who is lovingly along with us. Sometimes they don't even know that they're unlocking that room again. And it just happens, and you have a situation. So this is, this is the great blessing of what marriage is. <clears throat> um, In our lives, we are so often outward-facing through the senses. We must turn to face inward to the noose. So this reminds me of that quote from Elder Thaddeus about everyone wants to change the world and no one is looking at themselves. If we all looked at ourselves, the world would be more peaceful. I'm paraphrasing it. That within our marriage, it is so easy to look outward at the other person. How do we within our marriage continue to look inward and say, no, what is it within me? What's going on within me? If this person is hurting me, why am I hurt? Do you think about that? Instead of just, this person is hurting me, why am I hurt? Because the being hurt is actually not a requirement. It's not a requirement that we're hurt. The fact of our being hurt means there's something there, at least to confess. Maybe we're not going to figure out everything that's going on inside of us. Any thoughts? Questions? He says, Facing and enduring hardships is essential to human life because through it we are sanctified. And this is a really key point in terms of marriage. It is through the hardships that we are sanctified. 
It is through the hardships that we are sanctified. We cannot achieve theosis, sanctification, without hardship. We know this. We don't want to believe it. So here's Elder Emilianos again. A person who has experienced no hardship or adversity in his life, who has never known sorrow or pain, who has never learned to endure the blows of life, whether inflicted by demons or other human beings or simply life itself, can never have a full and meaningful life. So that's the, the, uh, the good medicine for us is when we look at our struggles and we can say to ourselves, thank God. Now I'm really getting down to who I am. Now I'm digging deeper down to who I am. And this is uniquely accomplished within marriage, but uh, not exclusively at all. But there's a, there is a uniqueness in the, the depth of that intimacy. St. John Chrysostom said, <coughs> Many difficulties exist in marriage. Even if you avoid them, you will be unable to do so entirely. Marital problems are just like the thorns that stick to your clothes when you climb across a hedge. When you turn to pick one out, you are caught by several more. So it, is, so it is too in the case of marriage. If you escape one problem, you are pierced by another. If you avoid one trouble, you stumble upon another. In a word, it is impossible to discover a marriage free from all unpleasantness. There we go. So everyone, take courage. <laughs> And this is one from St. Clement in the second century. This is about comparing the, the celibate life and married life. And he speaks about a husband, but you can easily transpose this to being about a wife as well. True manhood is shown not in the choice of a celibate life. On the contrary, the prize in the contest of men is won by him who has trained himself by the discharge of the duties of husband and father and by the supervision of a household, regardless of pleasure or pain. By him, I say, who in the midst of his solicitude for his family shows himself inseparable from the love of God and rises superior to every temptation which assails him through children and wife and servants and possessions, on the other hand, he who has no family is in most respects untried. In any case, as he takes thought only of himself, he is inferior to the one who falls short of him as regards to his own salvation. But who has the advantage in the conduct of life inasmuch as he actually perseveres the image of the true providence? Any thoughts on those quotes? So these were within the presentation that Deacon Stephen gave. Second quote was St. John Chrysostom, and that last one was St. Clement of Rome. Yeah. Yeah. So that um, brings us to the, the, the sentences that I said in the homily, which are the path to a faith unashamed and love unfeigned is a path away from self sufficiency. Self sufficiency is the path of addiction. Thoughts on that? Still mulling that a little bit? <laughs> yeah. Expand on that a little bit? I did in the homily. Uh, I'll do it again. <laughs> so when we are self-sufficient, when, when we are living the delusion of self-sufficiency, 
because we're not self-sufficient, because we didn't create ourselves, we didn't create our possessions, we didn't create anything. We just took, took, took. So, but we give ourselves this delusion of self-sufficiency, even though we didn't give ourselves anything. So when we're living in this delusion of self-sufficiency, which so many of us live in constantly, what happens is we have these little moments that pierce into our life that are too much to bear. A tragedy, a job loss, in my case last week, the flu, whatever it may be, that come into our lives and remind us, I don't have control. So when we have that reminder of that, and sometimes it's just sort of a low-grade thing, like the stresses of parenting or of, of a work situation. When we have that sort of low-grade sense of like, I don't have control, it's too much, all of that, we look for ways to numb that. And the ways that we numb that are multitudinous. There are many different ways in which we do that. So that's where self-sufficiency is the path to addiction. So. And I don't. Yeah. Because if there's no God, we have to be self-sufficient, right? Otherwise, what is there? If we don't have control and there's no God in control, then what is there? So yeah, it's understandable why society has that perspective because there's no God. But it's delusion because even if there's no God, then where did I come from? How did I exist? How did I come to be? How did I have my unique qualities and strengths and weaknesses? So even then, it's like an answer without an answer. So, and so the only answer then, you know, our, our, that proper understanding, which is to abandon the delusion of self-sufficiency, the only thing then is to make ourselves as dependent upon God as possible. Why? Because in fact, we already are. We already are by virtue of having been created by Him. So I think we only have, how many more minutes? Two more minutes, okay. <clears throat> okay, um, then he goes on to say, um, oh, and he asked this question again about the self-sufficiency delusion. How can we diffuse the blame and anger at seeing that we are human and not God? Right? This is what rises up in us, and many other forms, but blame and anger are two common ways that this rises, and it really comes from the realization, I'm not God, I'm human, I don't have control. And he says the solution to all of this is vulnerability, receptivity. Being receptive to being vulnerable. Isn't that the opposite of self-sufficiency? is saying, I'm not self-sufficient, I'm vulnerable. So our receptivity to vulnerability, to recognizing that we can't fix everything, that we can't manage and control everything, that is the key to us moving out of this, this delusion of self-sufficiency. Any thoughts on that? Questions? So where does that vulnerability exist? Because I can say vulnerability, and you're like, what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, in our relationships, what that means is everything is out. Everything is out. Whatever I'm actually struggling with, whatever is actually going on inside of me, in as much as I can actually describe it, because a lot of the times we can't really even describe it, it's all out with our, our faithful and trusted partner. And likewise, 
In the spiritual life, it's all out with our, our Father Confessor. Everything's here. This is all the mess that's inside of me. I am actually this bad. I do actually have this deep of problems and this petty of this and that and whatever it is. That's the key. Because what happens then in our spiritual lives, we are literally attracting the grace of God. Who wants to attract the grace of God? It's easy. Just vomit yourself out. That's how. That's how. Because the more that we can be able to say, no, this is me. And remember, it's all about me. It's not about that person's problem, that person did this to me, that person did that, or I did this, but you know, it was because that person did that. All of those things, all of those are ways of covering it up. Those are ways of covering it up. Me, I, what did I do? Who am I really? All of this attracts the grace of God. Why? Because we're getting out of delusion. God already knows all that. There's nothing that you can confess that God doesn't already know. So why are we withholding? Why are we holding back? Why are we saying, no, I'm only going to confess the things that are my fault? So this is, this is the path, truly the path. So as much as we can open ourselves up in the, the, the sanctified relationship of confession and also in the blessed relationship of marriage or in any really deep, close relationships that we have. Because this can also be between siblings as well. Adult siblings. We're not talking about kids doing this. But, <laughs> um, but we must do this. We must. Why? Because it's the only way of healing. It is the only way of healing. There is no other path. There is no other choice. It's this or don't be healed. So we're all moving in that direction. We all want to be healed. We just aren't willing to go the full distance. Everything is my fault. Can I bear that? Can I bear that? I don't say that in a self-hating way. I say that in a frank assessment of everything that I'm doing in my life. So, and I'll stop there in the interest of time. Thank you very much. <laughs> if you have more questions or thoughts, come forward. Thank you. We'll finish with a prayer, okay? Please rise for prayer. Also, holy saints Joachim and Anna, who are the icon of marriage as blessed by God, we pray for your intercession in all of our relationships, but especially in our marriages, that we may learn what it means to truly be vulnerable, open ourselves up to you, and turn away from self-sufficiency. Amen.